Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back for the first time, or maybe not the first time, but we know there's certainly a bunch of you who are going to be listening to our voices for the first time today. This is the Corner Kick podcast, uh, a podcast featuring myself, uh, Nathan Strauss, and Caleb Rhodes, and uh, we talk about all things soccer, both on the pitch, off the pitch, and beyond. Uh, and uh, boys, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves? Well, yeah, it's hard to believe that it's been you know, more than three years now since the inception of this podcast. I'm really looking forward to having our stuff on Spotify. It's certainly, you know, a more accessible platform than SoundCloud is. Uh, I'm Nathan Strauss. I am a current junior at UMass Amherst, and I'm an Arsenal fan first and Ajax fan second, uh, known for having, you know, countercultural takes and uh, a particular affinity for Wonder Kids from around the globe. Hi, I'm Caleb. I am a senior at Yale University. I am a Barcelona fan. I have family that live in Catalonia, so I'm not a total bandwagoner. And because I'm from Boston, I also have a soft spot for Liverpool, although I wouldn't say I am a Liverpool fan first at all. Um, I think I'm more of a mainstream soccer fan than Nathan. Certainly, you find us on different sides on a lot of arguments, but I'm looking forward to continuing to have some excellent discussions on the podcast. My name is Nick Vinden. I am a uh, junior at Suwannee, the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee. Uh, I am a second-generation Liverpool football club fan, uh, red till I die. Uh, very excited to be hoisting the Premier League trophy, fingers crossed, at the end of the season, uh, but we'll get to that later. Uh, I am also a fan of all things British soccer, so uh, uh, Scottish League, uh, championship, League One, League Two, all that good stuff. And I just really love kind of obscure out there stories of the game. So if you ever need to talk about uh, the Indian uh, Super League or anything like that, I am your guy for that sort of stuff. Yeah, he's a uh, he's a huge Kerala Blasters fan. Kerala Blasters, let's get it. Yep. Um, but yeah, gents, we're here talking on, we are just under a week away from the Premier League Coming back to our screens stateside and going back onto the pitch over there in Britain, uh, what are your impressions been of Project Restart as we get close to things kicking off with uh, Arsenal versus Man City in just six days' time? I mean, I so going off of just Arsenal's uh, performances in their warm-up friendlies so far, I think it's going to be really harried. I think it's going to be incredibly uncertain. I think we're going to see a lot of uncharacteristic mistakes uh, and I think that the bigger the clubs are, the more of an advantage they're going to have. Uh, Arsenal have played two friendlies in the past two weeks. They beat Charlton 6-0 before losing to Brentford 3-2. Um, and just as Bayern lost to a third division side 5-2 in one of their warm-up friendlies, it's hard to take away anything concrete other than there's a lot of rust for a lot of players. And for a team like Arsenal who didn't really have a nailed-on starting 11 before the break, it's going to be even more confusing, and it's definitely going to make Mikel Arteta's job a lot tougher. And I think that struggle is going to be magnified for smaller teams that don't quite have the depth or the use players that Arsenal have. I think Arsenal are toast, dude. That Brentford frenzy was was rough, especially the, the short video you sent, Nathan, yesterday of... David Luiz trying to like juggle between three people in midfield, losing the ball, and then getting absolutely destroyed by whoever that winger is on Brentford. Um, I mean, Arsenal have been 
fairly poor all season. I think they've been mediocre even since Arteta took over. I mean, they only have nine league wins this entire year. That's fewer league wins than Burnley, Crystal Palace, and Everton, let alone Sheffield United and Southampton. So this is, this is not a good Arsenal team at all. And I think considering they don't have a strong starting 11 or a set starting 11, there's like a lot of potential for them to just continue to kind of flail as they have no real momentum or ground to build off of. I think Arsenal couldn't have asked for a worse game to uh, restart their season with against Manchester City, who kind of were playing themselves back into form. Uh, they had that kind of statement win against Real Madrid in the Champions League before everything came to a halt due to the coronavirus pandemic. And I think with the time off, Pep Guardiola and Manchester City are certainly going to have They've had plenty of opportunities to uh, rejig and uh, recover and get back onto the pitch with impunity, as we've seen in, in the Bundesliga, where the bigger teams are squashing the smaller teams and just due to the fact that uh, playing away against sort of rambunctious crowds and crowds that uh, are in stadiums uh, in the lower, di- or not lower division to, per se, but like in just like the lower, the bottom half of the Bundesliga table where the atmosphere might be a little bit more intimidating, that factor has been eliminated. So teams like Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund and Borussia Mönchengladbach can go in there with no fear of being overwhelmed by the fan presence. And I think the Emirates at times can certainly be a very uh, raucous crowd. And I think without that and without the uh, the excitement uh, of Arsenal fans getting behind their old, uh, their old captain and Mikel Arteta, uh, that certainly might be an issue for Arsenal going forward. I was initially of the opinion that a game against City would uh, be the least ideal possible fixture for the Gunners going back to action, but Caleb actually changed my mind with something he said last week, um, and that having... Manchester City as the first opponent is probably better than having them as like the second or third opponent because in theory this first game back is going to have even more uncertainty than all the uh, other games that will come in the weeks ahead. It's entirely possible that you know both sides will be a little sloppy and keep in mind that this is the game in hand that Arsenal have so after this game they will uh, be back on uh, 29 games played with the rest of the Premier League. But the top the top half of the table is incredibly tight. I mean, only five points separate Arsenal in ninth from United in fifth. And especially considering the fact that, you know, City are likely going to have their ban from uh, European competitions upheld. The battle is really for, you know, sixth and seventh place. So it's entirely possible that this season is going to really come down to the wire in those nine games that are remaining. Do we know when we find out when? Mid-July. Okay, so during the like last few games of the season? Presumably. I mean, oh, I, think it's incredi- I think it's incredibly unlikely that their ban gets... Uh... Do you think it gets halved to like one year, though? Right. I, that might be the case, but I certainly think Nathan is right in that. I think we're going to we're gonna not see Manchester City in Europe next season. I think there's a very high likelihood of it being upheld. Yeah, that's so interesting. Especially as Chelsea look like they're about to be a behemoth next year. Yeah, there was, that, there was an interesting story today from The Athletic about how Timo Werner can't fly to London to get his medical done 
but Chelsea doctors can't fly to Leipzig to actually administer the medical because they then have to isolate for 14 days upon return. So it's a little COVID-22, if you will, um, in that this deal looks like it's going to make its way over the line, but it's actually, it can't be completed yet um, because of the various logistical... uh, Well, in that case, shall we just discuss the race for the European places in the top four specifically? Because it looks like Chelsea, uh, they were playing extremely well under Frank Lampard, and they had this really interesting blend of veterans and youth talent with the likes of uh, Willian and Mason Mount combining well and player, incorporating players like Bakayo Tomori into the defense uh, alongside veterans like, veterans like Rudiger. So especially now that we know that player, like, uh, talents like Hakim Ziyech, Timo Werner, uh, having been stolen from under the nose of Liverpool, and potentially Ben Chilwell coming in to strengthen the defense uh, at left back. What do you make of uh, Chelsea's push towards a uh, European finish, a Champions League finish inside the top four this season, especially with uh, uh, Spurs, Man United, and Arsenal having a bit of time to recharge? I mean, I think that their transfer ban couldn't have come at a better time. Uh, Obviously, knowing what we know now about how COVID has impacted the transfer market, having that, you know, 18 months worth of saved uh, spending to use now as uh, what Roman Abramovich called an alternative cash flow is massive because now they're able to pick up these players for far less than they would have had to uh, pay beforehand while also knowing better the talents and abilities of their youth players who have been incorporated into their starting lineup. And I think it's entirely possible that this is a Chelsea team that's challenging for the title, if not next year, then the year afterwards, because they have an incredibly young team. They have the experience uh, and depth in their squad to rotate when it comes to European play. And if they can hold on to that, you know, fourth spot or even move up into third, they'll definitely be a force to be reckoned with in Europe as well, as we've seen, um, you know, the European pedigree of players like Ziyech and Werner already this year. Yeah, I mean, kind of as you said, like hindsight is twenty twenty, and no, no pun intended, I guess. <laughs> um, but I think at the beginning of the year, we were all very kind of skeptical of whether Lampard could take his managerial exploits at Derby um, to the Premier League level. And I think as we've seen, having the ability to work with younger players like Tammy Abraham, Mason Mount, etc., Reese Reese James, Reese James, is that her name? Yeah, Reese James. Yes. Sorry, I was thinking Reese Oxford for a second, who's a different person. Um, Reese James has been really, really good. I kind of feel a little bad that Tammy Abraham's about to get like fully demoted next year, um, unless they go for like a two-striker formation a la Leipzig. But I think you're right, Nathan, that Chelsea are probably one of the best positioned teams, both heading into the finish and heading into um, next year. And on the on the note about <laughs> finishing Timo Werner's medical, couldn't they do it over Zoom? Like, couldn't, <laughs> like, like, couldn't, <laughs> no, 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 I mean, like, like, they have, they have the, they have the, the, um, Leipzig doctors do it, and then they're just watching the whole time to make sure it's not, like, staying, like, oh, he can bench, like, right. 400 kilograms, I think right, like, unfortunately, need to be the, uh, the medical staff in London for Chelsea that need to, uh, do the medical, or, uh, finish up all the other uh, team of Werner transfer, but I think we'll certainly see it get done. It sounds like it's 90%, if not 95% uh, 
in the bag that the uh, the dangerous German poacher will be heading to uh to, to to London next season. But shall we talk about the team directly following Chelsea in fifth place, Manchester United? Um, they were in really good form last time we saw them. They uh, beat Manchester City at Old Trafford, which was the uh, the first time they managed to do that in a very long time. Normally, uh, Manchester City kind of has them away from home. But uh, we certainly saw that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's side was adapting to a very counter-attacking style of play. They were comfortable without the ball, and uh, they were very, very, very adept at getting getting at teams on the counter-attack. We saw that first develop against Liverpool when they deployed that uh, 3-4-3 style at three at the back. And the three at the back with Luke Shaw at uh, centre-back has certainly provided an opportunity for Ole's side to uh, spring up in the rankings. I uh, think if they do get fourth place, it will be disastrous for Chelsea, especially with the new additions and having to deal with the poison chalice of the Europa League. But I think with uh, Jadon Sancho knocking at the door of uh, Manchester United, potentially coming in over the summer, I think getting fourth place is uh, pivotal for Ole. Well, well, that's the thing, though, because fifth place is going to be a Champions League spot. Oh, that's right. I totally forgot Manchester United. So... Right. So I personally don't think that United are a better team than Wolves. I do think that if Bruno Fernandes can continue really energizing this team, they can become a better team than Wolves. I just think that the Gunnar Solskjaer hasn't shown any kind of real, like, you know, tactical uh, ability so far. I think he, I he relies... What was that? I said, I actually disagree. Really? I'm saying this is a Liverpool fan. Yeah, I think the switch to three at the back was kind of ingenious, especially since he didn't have the personnel to have a very sturdy two at the back. Uh, converting Luke Shaw to a center back and letting Aaron Wan-Bissaka roam free on the right, especially since one of his big criticisms at Crystal Palace was that he never really got the opportunity to display how effective he was going forward. Now he has the uh, the ability to roam free on that right-hand side and delivering balls to the likes of Bruno Fernandes, to Marcus Rashford uh, up top. So I think that was certainly a switch from Ole that has really, really, really shaken up Manchester United for good. I mean, I think I'm also interested to see, like, the effect Pogba will have now that he's back because he's been missing for the entire season. Is Rashford fit again also? I think Rashford is ready to go. Okay, so in a lot of ways, this is the first time, arguably, we'll be able to see a truly full-strength Man U team under Solskjaer with Fernandez, um, and I think that that is a potentially scary prospect considering how quickly Fernandez was able to boss his first few games. Um, and I think him and Pogba could prove to be an incredibly dynamic um, combination, all a like vintage Yaya Toure, um, like David Silva in like 2015. Like I think it could be like that type of combination. Yeah. Um, I, oh yeah, go ahead, Caleb. Sorry. No, I just think, and then if they do hold on to fifth place or even get into fourth, but either way, we're kind of agreeing that it'll probably be a Champions League spot. And then you add Jin Sancho, and you no longer have to play uh, Jesse Lingard, who's been poor all year. So we should say, man, you have been playing decently well despite you know a lack of production from young superstar Jesse Lingard, Jay Lings. Um, or Daniel James, who offers nothing other than pace, really. I, I think that could be a truly terrifying team. Actually, Daniel James leads their side and assists. So it's not like he's not providing any end product. Uh, he's but with the- what, like five? 
right? Like, how many does he have? He has six, which is not like an incredible amount. <laughs> no, but, right. But I've, that's more, that's more an indictment of like a lack of production. Like that that shows you that they needed someone like Bruno Fernandez, who's actually a playmaker. Well, Bruno right? Fernandez is already at three, so he's already right, uh, mean. very much on pace to uh, beat Daniel James's uh, yeah. mighty number of assists come the end of the yeah. season. Yeah, and I have nothing against Daniel James. I just think we can all agree that he's not really quite at what we expect a Manchester United player to be. And I think there's a lot of players in that squad we could say the same of, but the point still stands. Yeah, I feel like United have a lot of... I think the one worry with Bruno Fernandes is that he was getting so hot uh, right before everything came to a halt. And will he be able to uh, pick it up and go without a lot of momentum? That that I think that's the question because the yeah I mean like Bruno Fernandez is off right he's now we're all kind of accustomed to Bruno Fernandez Bruno Fernandez being at Man United will he be able to uh, replicate a lot of that heat and fire coming into right. the restart right I mean like looking at the Bundesliga as an example which obviously isn't perfect I think we're seeing that a lot of the big players have been able to fully like pick up the pace again and I think that's partly because of their inherent quality and partly because you know worst teams aren't playing as well but we've seen like Havertz, Muller, Lewandowski even like Davies have all been like lethal Sancho as well has picked up pretty fast Werner um and there was some there was some an art there was an article the other day that shows that uh Bundesliga players have been like much more efficient in scoring goals someone's again maybe the fact that they're producing as much as they were before is partly down to like worse goalkeeping or worse defending but i think in terms of just like literal raw production we've seen the top players pick up the pace pretty fast i think one of the areas that that's going to be really interesting is when you look at the teams that are currently in sixth and seventh the two biggest overachievers by far in wolves and sheffield united they're both on 43 points apiece wolves with a better goal difference of seven but these are two teams that are have established themselves as legitimate challengers for uh, you know, Europa League and maybe even a Champions League spot. How do you guys think that they will be able to pick up knowing that their squads are less deep and they have less star power than the traditional big six? I think the worry for Wolves is that we've seen in games uh, at home against Manchester City that they really do sometimes rely on the crowd to uh, jeer them up to get the result, especially late in games. A lot of Wolves' goals have come at the in the last 25 minutes of games. Like they have the highest ratio of like end-game goals or something like that. They, they're, they're really adept at uh, waiting until the very last second to uh, get the winner and pour the pressure on. I think they will be able to replicate some of that, uh, but it will be, it'll be difficult for them, especially at home, to get results against the bigger sides. And I think we saw that their last uh, Premier League game was a nil-nil draw at home to Brighton. So they were certainly kind of waning in form. And they have 13 draws in the Premier League, which is a really high number for a team in uh, sixth place currently. So I think they'll definitely need to keep that consistency, but they'll need to do it without their really raucous home crowd. And the same goes for uh, Sheffield United, who I think were really, really, really excellent at home. Even Liverpool ha- uh, had to struggle to uh, get a 1-0 result away. Uh, at Sheffield United. So I think both of these teams are really going to suffer without a crowd. So and they're both quality. Uh, Sheffield United less so. I think Wolves have a lot more quality on the ball than them. But I think Sheffield is going to suffer the most by not having their uh, their kind of cauldron of a home fan base to support them. Yeah, I totally agree. 
Um, and yeah, Wolves have the most draws in the Premier League other than Arsenal um, with 13. And I think that, well, I also agree that I'm more worried about Sheffield than Wolves, partly because Sheffield don't really have an offense and they've really been just relying on their, I think they have the second best defense in the league, which is insane. Yeah, they have the second best defense in the league after Liverpool and before Leicester. Um, and I think that speaks to a lot of their team and their results relies on having like supreme discipline, supreme reliance on like a system, supreme, you know, uh, chemistry with their teammates. And that's the type of thing that definitely does go away when you have a break for three months. And I think once again, we can look to the Bundesliga for examples of this, like Bayern's defense has not been especially good, right? Dortmund too have also been a little shaky, although they always are. So I think that despite especially bigger teams being able to resume their offensive displays, I think defense has generally suffered for everyone. And that's really worrying for a team like Sheffield, who are essentially totally reliant on having an incredibly sturdy and overperforming defense. I mean, the flip side of this is saying that like Sheffield are already overperforming. And if they end up slipping 10th and Tottenham and Arsenal, who are currently below them, end up finishing above them, I think we can still say very successful season. Um, but definitely concerns if they think that they can actually grab one of those Europa League spots. And on that point, Sheffield United have only scored 30 goals in the Premier League, which is the lowest in the top six by double digits, by 10. Um, so, and, and their top scorer this season is John Fleck with five, who's a center back. So I think as we've seen with the Bundesliga, where goals are going to be coming thick and fast, Sheffield United don't really have that focal point in attack. Their next highest scoring player is Lise Mousset, who is a tied with five, who is a striker. Um, and I'm certainly not confident in Lise Mousset uh, banging in the goals for the rest of the season for Sheffield United. So I think there is definitely going to be a worry for the Blades going forward here with Project Restart. They also have the, uh, the, the toughest remaining schedule out of the, uh, the non-Liverpool and City teams in the top nine. So um, it's entirely possible that we see them slip up even as you know Spurs and Arsenal might capitalize and move into those Europa League spots. We didn't really touch on Leicester at all, but they're pretty safely in third with five points separating them and Chelsea. Do you think that they are going to be able to sustain this kind of play for another year, even if they yeah. do lose someone like Ben Chilwell? <laughs> yeah, I think they are. I think we're seeing a evolved form of Brendan Rodgers. I think when Brendan Rodgers was at Liverpool, he got a little bit too overconfident with that 13-14 season, not really realizing that he was totally reliant on his star players to get incredible results. I think he went away to Celtic and really refined how he was able to organize a defense, and we've seen that at Leicester. That 4-4-1-1 or 4-2 kind of can be deployed as a 4-2-3-1 in attack, but can be really stable going back. And um, he's recognized the importance of Wilfred and Didi and spent a lot of time developing him into one of the best defensive midfielders in the Premier League. And I think they are in danger of this summer having a lot of those talent uh, being scouted and stolen away from them, the likes of Ricardo Pereira, Ben Chilwell, as you were saying, uh, Wilfred Ndidi, who is certainly uh, might be a target for the likes of Manchester City, who are going to be losing Fernandinho uh, at some point pretty soon, since he's aging. Uh, he's already, I think, 35 or 36. And Ndidi, I think, would be perfect to uh, replace the likes of Fernandinho at Manchester City. Uh, and Jamie Vardy, 
who I think is uh, just an energizer bunny at the moment, but you never know when you're going to fall off the cliff uh, when you're an aging striker like he is. So I think um, they're certainly going to need to put an eye towards recruiting, which is something that Brendan Rodgers isn't especially strong at. So I think he's going to need to, uh, he's already shown that he can uh, improve in terms of organizing a defense, but he needs to also show now that he can improve when it comes to uh, scouting talents and purchasing players in the offseason. Yeah, this this Leicester team is honestly like pretty amazing. Um, like I don't even think they're necessarily overperforming, right? I honestly think that they might be like legitimately one of the top four squads in the league, and they just have so much, like they're so balanced, and they've definitely had players play better than we probably expected, like Soyuncu Chu at center back, but then we also have players like Ricardo Pereira who are legitimately probably one of the top. I'll say it like five right backs in the world right now. Um, I, I think once again, as Nick sort of mentioned, like this team at the end of the day does like live or die by Jamie Vardy scoring and he's not a young man anymore and he's not going anywhere. And honestly, I think they'll be able to retain most players this summer considering just the general uncertainty in the soccer world. And I don't know. I, I think that they deserve their spot and I think that they can keep it going for another year. Yeah, I mean, Leicester went unbeaten from October 5th when they lost 2-1 to Liverpool till December 21st when they lost to City and then they lost to Liverpool the next week. So like, this is a very, very capable team. And I agree with you. I don't view them as overperforming. I view them as having been underestimated before the season. Right, uh, and we even touched on the likes of uh, Harvey Barnes and James Madison who are two really young English playmakers and goal scorers. Harvey Barnes, who is their top assist leader uh, this season. And they also have the likes of Iosi Perez, Yuri Tielemans. Like Caleb was saying, this team is incredibly balanced. And while I don't think they're going to be at a large risk of losing a lot of their talent this summer, I think we can certainly start to see that people are casting an eye towards uh, these Leicester players. And I think we could see a situation where, like Conte and Mares left Leicester in the past, it could be a situation where Madison, like a like of the likes of Madison and Ndidi, leave in one season, and they're kind of left scrambling to replace them. Yeah, but this team's this team's honestly better than the title winning side. Oh which no, was absolutely. Like, I mean, that's which not is a, like there's no question about that. Yeah. They are a few cogs away from not being as well balanced and good a team. No, no, sure, but I still think that like you know, Conte, Mares leaving essentially drained their entire midfield backbone. But this year, even if you get rid of Madison, like I still think Tielemans can take on a more attacking role. Like Dennis Price can um, also play there. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously if they lose these big players, it'll hurt them. But I think they're in a much better position to weather some big sales. And I also think they're in a better position to fight off needing to sell those players too. Right? I think nobody expected you know, Mares or Conte to stay especially, or Vardy, honestly. And they, so I don't know. I, I think this team is both better and better positions to stay good than the original title winning side. Well, yeah, but I think part of the reason that, you know, Leicester did feel so drained after after that title winning season and, and selling those players compared to now, I mean, Tielemans cost 50 million, Iosi Perez was 40 million, uh, Priot was 25 million. It's a far cry from, you know, spending three to six million on a bunch of unknown League Two players. So uh, they've definitely, they might have lost some of that fairy tale element that made them so special uh, 
those years ago, but I think they're certainly still a fun team to watch. Usavia almost just scored there. Uh, moving down the table, there are really you know six teams in danger of going down. One of those teams is almost a lock to go down in the Canaries of Norwich. It could be an interesting relegation battle. You've got Norwich on 21 points and then three teams on 27 uh, in Bournemouth, Watford, and West Ham with Villa in 19th on 25. Yeah, Who do you guys think ends up in the in the championship? Right. Yeah, unsurprisingly, a lot of these teams are the teams that were uh, advocating for the Premier League not to restart. Uh, and now they're, uh, they're facing the really harsh prospects of facing the drop down to the championship, which not only kind of relegates you away from the eye of the world game uh, in many ways, but it also really depletes a lot of the funds at your club. Uh, the financial gap between the championship and the Premier League is somewhat of an unforgiving one, especially now post-coronavirus. So I think uh, Watford were definitely in danger of going down, but now with Nigel Pearson uh, at the helm, someone who knows the Premier League, knows how to organize a side to uh, stay up, I think they're going to be safe going forward, especially with the time that he's going to he's gonna have had with his squad um, getting ready to restart. Uh, I think West Ham under David Moyes, we've seen that he wasn't able to prevent the likes of Sunderland uh, going down. And I think West Ham, it's just so sad because they have such a talented squad uh, for the division, but they've never been able to really organize themselves. I think maybe West Ham playing in front of no audience or no crowd um, in that vast London stadium, which they've never really gotten used to ever since their move from Upton Park, might actually be a blessing in disguise for them. So I think there is a chance that they're going to be able to stay up. And I think uh, they're going to need players like Sebastian Haller, Felipe Anderson, uh, and their youngsters who they're integrating, like Declan Rice, to really, really perform if they're going to stay up. Uh, yeah. Those are my thoughts. Okay, I'm calling a transfer. I'm calling a transfer. I think that as soon as Norwich go down, um, Emiliano Buendia is going to go to Wolves. <laughs> like you that. heard it here first. That's I think I uh, Pochettino also really liked him when uh, he was still at Spurs. So I think that might have just been the Argentinian connection. But I think Buendia is a talented player, nonetheless. I mean, if you... I think the three teams that end up going down are Norwich, Villa, and Watford. I trust Bournemouth more than I trust Watford to make it out of that zone. And I do think that West Ham's pedigree, the players that they have are just functionally better players than the people who they're competing with. I think Brighton are going to be pretty safe. They're also excellent at... um, earning their draws, you know, four of their last five games going into the break are draw had were draws. So uh, when, you know, really that, that 38 point cutoff is what you need to stay afloat on average. They need to only average a draw a game or, or, or one point per game the rest of the way out. Um, and I, I trust that they'll be able to do that. That being said, I feel kind of bad that, that Norwich are going to end up going down um, there, I think there are like there's an eighty percent chance that they end up relegated, according to five thirty eight, because they took more risks than pretty much any other recently promoted team that I can remember, and they were a really fun team to watch. And I think that they're a team that's going to get absolutely torn to shreds by the transfer market when they do get relegated with players like Aaron's Timu Puki, uh, 
Cantwell. Cantwell. Yeah, Cantwell. I mean, all these, all these players that have proven themselves to have some quality are just going to find themselves picked up by like Spurs and Wolves and maybe even Arsenal, who were rumored uh, to be in for uh, Tom Treble at one point. So I feel bad for them, but it seems like they're destined for the championship. Meanwhile, in the championship, uh, West Brom and Leeds are the favorites for uh, automatic promotion. So it'll be good to see those two former Premier League stalwarts back next season. I don't think the likes of Southampton or Brighton are in danger of going down, just because I think Graham Potter, I trust Graham Potter and uh, Ralph Hasenhutl, especially Ralph Hasenhutl, who just signed a new five-year deal with us, with Southampton. And I think very much like uh, Jurgen Klopp needed time at Liverpool to secure the style. I think Hasenhutl needs that like four or five-year period in the Premier League to secure the style, but he'll be able to keep Southampton up, uh, especially with the likes of... Um, Will Smallbone and all that talent from the really, really acclaimed uh, Southampton Academy that he is slowly integrating into the team. So I think they're both uh, Brighton as well with Graham Potter. I think he's a very, very good manager, as we've seen at uh, Swansea and abroad in Sweden. Uh, so I don't know. I think they're both they're both pretty safe going forward. I have I have one last Premier League topic before maybe we move on to La Liga. Um, where do you guys think Everton? finish not above 10th i think i don't know i just don't everton are really tough right because their first game coming back is going to be against liverpool in the merseyside derby um it's not going to be it's going to be the quietest merseyside derby of all time but they're just not big game performers and i think even with ancelotti even though he's He's slowly, slowly getting players like Dominic Calvert-Lewin to become consistent scorers and providers for Everton. Uh, he is kind of just slowly forcing his will onto the side. I don't think he's going to have quite enough with this team who has not yet replaced Lukaku and Idrissa Gay in uh, defensive midfield and defense to quite have enough to push for a top 10 position. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, their their schedule, what's left, is like very polarized. They play Liverpool, Leicester, Everton, Wolves, and Sheffield, but they also play Aston Villa, Bournemouth, Bournemouth, and Norwich. So I could easily see them, you know, losing like four or five games, but then also winning three. Um, I don't know. I just think I, I thought that sort of before the break, Ancelotti had started to kind of catch on something especially with like Dominic Calvert-Lewin um but I agree maybe maybe this season is not quite when they're able to sort of burst into the light but also at the same time their last three games before the break was a 3-2 loss to Arsenal a 1-1 draw at home to Man United and a 4-0 drubbing at Stamford Bridge so I certainly think while Ancelotti has come in and he's shored them up in many ways there's still a lot of work to be done at Everton. And I think we need to give Ancelotti a proper transfer window uh, before we can certainly say that Everton can push for the top 10 or even a Europa League place going forward, where I think the quality of a manager like Ancelotti does belong in the likes of those places. Just not yet with their squad. Fair enough. Crossing over into Spain, 
now, I guess, where we have a legitimate title race. I believe the only legitimate title race still remaining in the top five leagues. Uh, Barcelona currently favored to win the league, uh, while Real Madrid, right behind them, in fact, La Liga is actually getting back underway as we are recording this right now. Barca with a two-point edge over their arch-rivals with Sevilla, Sociedad, Hitafe, and Atletico Madrid close behind. Caleb, as the resident Barcelona fan, do you think uh, the Kules are able to hang on? I think so. I mean, okay, but if if the season had played out norm, like without coronavirus, I think we would have lost, especially because we would have been without Suarez um, and Martin Braithwaite is not a replacement for Suarez. I don't think that's a very contentious statement. Um, but now that we have Suarez back and we have Braithwaite, so now we actually have some offensive depth after we were kind of destroyed um, and then sold our depth in Perez to Roma in one of, once again, the strangest transfers I can think of. Um, I, I think we can pull it off. I mean, our defense has been pretty poor this year, but once again, part of coming back from coronavirus is having a bad defense. So arguably, it'll be just normal. Um, and our schedule is like relatively difficult. I mean, we play Villarreal, Atleti, Athletic, and Sevilla. Um, but I think at the end of the day, we'll be able to pull it out. I don't know. That's my my two cents. Yeah, I think Barcelona were slowly grinding to a halt uh, towards the beginning of the break, uh, kind of emphasized by their 1-0 win at home against Real Sociedad uh, with a Lionel Messi penalty in the 80th minute deciding that. And I think there's a, a lot of tumultuousness behind the scenes at Barcelona, which might impact their play on the pitch at product restart. But I, I saw, I read an article, I read a report from Bleacher Report that said that Barcelona were doing extremely well in training and that they were surprising even themselves uh, post-break. So I think, I think the quality is going to be there. We're going to see some standard uh, Barcelona amazing football on the pitch. I think it's going to be whether or not all the distractions off the field affect their performance on the field. Yeah, and I mean, Barcelona do have Trincao, Trincao, coming in uh, this summer or whenever the new transfer window uh, opens up. But they have issues that are so pervasive that that, that go well beyond uh, however the season will finish up. Real Madrid, meanwhile, I didn't realize how strong their defense is, but with only 19 goals conceded, that's nuts. 19 goals conceded in 27 games, it's like, what, 0.8 goals per game? Uh, and I think... You know, all it takes is Barcelona losing like one of their first three games. So Mallorca, Leganes, and Sevilla for Real Madrid to get re-motivated. We sort of saw how Bayern were able to just really take control in the Bundesliga from the first match day post-COVID and really just kill and extinguish all the hope that Dortmund, Mönchengladbach, and Leipzig had. I think if Barcelona falter out of the gates... Madrid are going to be able to capitalize because the only thing that, that would substitute for, you know, the energy that a crowd would give you is that motivation, knowing that the title is up for grabs. So it could be really, really interesting. Um, I think uh, the, only be a... the other thing we have to put forward is that Eden Hazard is finally uh, fit and ready to play for Real Madrid. So he is an important cog in their machine that is going to be 
kind of being able to be deployed in full for the first time ever since the summer when they purchased him. He's kind of had an on and off start at Real Madrid, and he's now finally going to have had time to rest and recuperate and hit the ground running, hopefully for them. Another uh, story from Spain, not La Liga, but uh, in the Segunda División, yesterday, Albacete were facing off with Rayo Vallecano, um, but they were completing the second half of a game that actually was started in December. But Albacete had had a player get sent off in the first half, so they named a starting 10 as they uh, resumed their game, which... Viacano ended up winning one nil. Why was the game canceled in December? I think I think it was weather at halftime. Oh, that's pretty funny. Yeah, just a little it. interesting tidbit there. I like that it's not even Corona that canceled it. It was yeah, like no. there, right? <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, yeah, I mean that that's interesting. There there are a lot of good storylines in the Liga though too, like Sociedad and Getafe overperforming, like Atleti are all the way down in sixth, Villarreal or Valencia in seventh, Villarreal in eighth. Meanwhile, you have teams like Espanyol who are in last place right now. Um, and it, it'd honestly be a real shame if Espanyol went down because then there wouldn't be a Barcelona Derby anymore. Um, so definitely definitely well, an interesting league. Espanyol are going to go down there, sitting rock bottom in the La Liga. Oh, dude, I, th- I think they're going to go down unless Wule becomes, you know, a world-class striker. There's not a lot going on in their team. Although they do have Raul de Thomas, um, who's pretty good. And they have Fecundo. Okay, they, they have a lot of kind of like journeyman strikers who each had like one good year. Um, but definitely, it's not it's not looking great for the yeah, second what's team. What's going on at Atletico Madrid right now? They're sitting in sixth place. Um, they're, as of right now, not going to be getting into the Champions League. And they're, they're only a point off with uh, 45 points to uh, Real Sociedad's. 46 points, and it's yet to be seen whether or not Sociedad and Getafe will continue to perform uh, post-restart. But what do you think has gone wrong uh, this season at Atletico Madrid? We know we lo- they lost Antoine Griezmann, uh, their talisman, over the summer, and they did have to replace a lot of deficiencies in defense with the likes of uh, Kieran Trippier, Renan Lodi, and uh, Felipe coming in. But where do you think uh, Atleti's kind of rebuild issues have uh, stemmed from? They just have no offense. I mean, they spent $100 million on Jao Felix, and he has, like, a few goals and a few assists, and that's it. Um, and that's not going to replace the, like, you know, like, 20-ish goals and 10 or so assists that Griezmann had the year before. Murata has once again failed to prove that he can really, like, lead the line. Diego Costa has been injured a lot. So their their defense is as good as ever. They've actually replaced very well, but their attack is just not, doing anything at all in fact their you know win against liverpool in the champions league was probably one of their highest scoring games this entire season um and i think that's why they brought someone like carrasco back from china in the january transfer window but they just aren't really putting any goals in the back of the net like they have 31 goals in 27 games that is i I know you were i know you were sort of just saying that off the top of your head but they have not scored more than three goals in uh, either a league or cup game this year. In fact, the last game in which they scored more than three goals was, no, not their game against the MLS All-Stars, but their game against Real Madrid in the International Championship Cup of uh, of last July 26th. 
in which Diego Costa scored five goals and got sent off for violent conduct. Diego Costa so, scored five uh, goals. Yeah, in and one got game sent off, and got sent off. That is or pardon me, sorry, he scored sorry, he scored four goals and got sent off. Okay, okay. That makes it more reasonable. If I've ever heard one. I know, exactly. It's like Mario Balotelli on steroids. And by steroids I mean horse placenta. But Dude, I do think that I don't know if we have time to talk about Mario Balotelli, but this <laughs> the story came out. I know this is completely off topic, but the story came out that he has uh, been denied entry into the Brescia training ground because of uh, injury that Brescia is not willing to insure him for uh, because they kind of want him off the books. So it's just like the sad tale of Mario Balotelli continues to uh, get even sadder. But uh, that's a topic for another time. I mean, I think Balotelli has two part, multiple parts to him, as we've discussed actually on like an earlier episode of Quarantine Kick. We did, um, yeah. We were talking about I which mean, we want to see right. uh, get their own Hollywood movie treatment, and Balotelli right. is very high on the I, list. I think on the one hand, Balotelli has shown a lot of courage, and he's been one of, if not the most vocal player in the anti-racism campaign um, in Serie A. On the other hand, he also has, over the course of his career, demonstrated a remarkable ego and a lack of discipline that I think has cost him at whatever club he was at, whether that be City when he tried that flamboyant backheel against the Galaxy or Liverpool, or even, you know, when he would score and then get sent off multiple times in the same season playing for Nice. So definitely a multifaceted man, um, one whose flaws have to be examined in uh, hand in hand with his uh, activism and uh, speech against racism so yeah, dude he's just the id unleashed right like <laughs> there's no there's no like restraint or thought there at all speaking um, of no restraint uh delhi ali has been suspended for one match and fined fifty thousand pounds because of a, a racist act that he did against a person of asian descent uh during the COVID 19 crisis so uh, this but, is actually a good segue into our last topic for the day which is the intersection of the the Black Lives Matter movement and the soccer world. Uh, Nick, do you want to take it away? Yeah, absolutely. I think we can't really... The three of us at Corner Kick felt that we couldn't just talk about the restart of soccer as we as we are all eager for um, its return to our television sets and on the field without discussing the tremendous impact that the, the murder of George Floyd... Uh, Breonna Taylor and Ahmad Arbery have had not only on the world of soccer, because I think the world is watching the events that have transpired uh, in the U.S. in the past couple of weeks, as we've seen with the likes of players protesting in the Bundesliga, the whole of Bayern Munich um, in Frankfurt wearing Black Lives Matter and anti-racism uh, shirts. In fact, Frankfurt's uh, sponsor yesterday during their DFP Pokal semifinal against Bayern Munich was just the hashtag Black Lives Matter. So we've seen that uh, the issue of racism prevention and soccer are at odds once again. And I think it was sort of an interesting season for the Say No to Racism just campaign and players campaigning for uh, the end of things like monkey chants and uh, criticism in the media. I think Raheem Sterling has been certainly a champion of that ever since his uh, big move to Manchester City and getting more public scrutiny. But I think we can 
we couldn't just glance over the fact that it is having a great impact on the return to soccer right now. And I think it couldn't come at a better point, um, especially with everything just sort of swirling around and kicking up again and players once again having the opportunity to demonstrate uh, their willingness to protest for what they think is right um, with everything starting to transition back to on-the-field play. Yeah, and there's no better time for soccer to kind of like pick up the mantle of being leaders on issues of social justice than a time when people have very little else other than to watch games and to sort of follow the people that are actually doing things in the world, like the players. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is an era of extreme player power. I think players nowadays, between social media and on-field performances, have the most power uh, of all time relative to the media and fans. And it's good to see, you know, players like uh, Marcus Rashford, Raheem Sterling, as well as uh, Hector Bellerin organizing, uh, you know, taking a knee as a team, uh, organizing calls between all Premier League captains and sort of planning things out as a unit. And so I'm very proud at how uh, most of the soccer world has responded. Right. I think uh, the first, I mean, not, I mean, not to like deviate from the efforts of Sterling or anything like that, but the first team to publicly come out and take a knee uh, was Liverpool Football Club. And I say this not to just like praise lavishly the efforts of Liverpool, but also to do a bit of self-reflection on Liverpool's history of uh, sort of racial injustice in the past. Uh, obviously in 2012, when Luis Suarez uh, racially abused Patrice Evra on the pitch, Liverpool did not spring to denounce the actions of uh, their striker, but instead they went completely in the opposite direction and chose to uh, not listen to the complaints and uh, cries of Evra and the Man United fans and fans of the Premier League around the globe um, in denouncing Suarez. Instead, they decided to wear pro-Suarez t-shirts and uh, defend the that act till the bitter end, which is, I think, it, it's a stain on the club. Um, and it was really, really, really good to see that the club internally was able to reflect on um, that moment and come out with a uh, just an incredibly, incredibly moving visual of the entire squad, players from Africa, from Europe, from Asia, all in the center circle, taking a knee. Um, apparently Virgil van Dijk and Jorginho Wijnaldum uh, were the two people who organized that for Liverpool. And now we're seeing that being replicated uh, all over the world on pitches across the globe. So it was, as a Liverpool fan, it was extremely um, moving for me to see that we had kind of reflected on our past transgressions as a club uh, in defending an act that was so indefensible in 2012 and uh, moving forward and changing and uh, doing putting some good out there in the world. Yeah, and I think um, it's, it's good to see how, you know, in just the last decade, last half decade, really, clubs have sort of changed their priorities in terms of responding to racist incidents, either, you know, at games, from players themselves, um, you know, a good example is literally just yesterday um, in the Bundesliga, a Mainz fan, uh, a Mainz season ticket holder, complained to the club 
that there were too many non-German and too many um, black players on the team. And the club responded, while we usually regret to hear of anyone waiting or wanting to cancel their membership and fight passionately for each of our members, in this instance, we cannot begin to express any regret. Um, And so I think there is a willingness on the club's part to take a stand on these issues um, that is, I think, much newer than I think we would like to think. But at the same time, it's good to see these attitudes changing from institutions that actually have power to, or just that just have power. Yeah. Yeah. I think the next step, I think the next step for this is to, I know player power is immensely important, especially with the platforms that all these players have now with immense following is on uh, social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. And especially since clubs, soccer has just gone so global, especially in the United States in the past couple of years. But I think now it's important that movements and organizations like the Say No to Racism campaign really get accelerated. And I think it's now is the time for the likes of FIFA, the Premier League, the big five leagues uh, in Europe, the UEFA and the Champions League. It's time for them to do kind of put their money where their mouth is and put their money where their slogan is and stamp out racism with uh, changes at the institutional level of the game instead of just leaving it to the players to defend themselves uh, on the pitch and in the media. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of fans from England in particular have been complaining that, you know, the actions aren't genuine and that these clubs are taking stands purely because of like social pressure. But at the end of the day, taking a stand because of social pressure is still better than not taking a stand. And a lot of the times progress, especially in the sports world, is due to that kind of social pressure. Uh, and so the only real way that change is going to happen is if it's player-led and player-driven. And Nick, that's why I totally agree with what you just said there. Right. I think we even saw in the NFL that because Patrick Mahomes was involved in that video uh, late last week, that the NFL was pressured into supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think we haven't really yet seen that in the soccer world, where player pressure has really forced institutional change from the likes of a football association, right? I think while play, like it's really, really good that Sterling, uh, Van Dyke, Wijnaldum, even Weston McKinney, who came out this week and denounced Donald Trump uh, as a president, which is really, really kind of unique for a U.S. men's national team player to do something like that. I think we've really yet to see something like the Mahomes effect uh, work in soccer, where player power affects big institutional change on an organizational level. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe this isn't big institutional change, but I think after, you know, McKinney's been very outspoken recently, the U.S. um, Soccer Association changed one of their codes, which sort of banned or suggested that players should have to stand during the anthem to allow for players to kneel. And I don't think that's a big change. um, And that's definitely not, you know, the scope of change we should be seeking. Um, But I think it is telling that we're seeing as a result of player outcry, um, changes to the structure of the game to allow for sort of players to act as activists as they're playing. I, that wasn't very eloquent, but I think it gets yeah, across a little bit what I'm trying yeah, to say. I think that, first of all, that was like one of the dumbest decisions. The, in the U.S. The U.S. Federation has made some 
really, really foolish decisions over the past five years, especially. And I think you can count that amongst the top of uh, dumb decisions that they've made. So I'm glad that they've backtracked on that, especially since that was due to uh, Megan Rapino, probably their most visible uh, and vocal star in the U.S. setup, taking a knee uh, before the Women's World Cup this season. Uh, not this season, this year. So I'm glad to see that they backtracked on that. But we need to see more of that, uh, more of uh, federations and football associations uh, willing to step out of their comfort zone uh, and do the right thing in response to all of these players uh, pressuring them to do so and putting good up there in the world. So and, and at the yeah, and at the same time, as we're talking about the U.S. national team, there was one notable U.S. national team star who really uh put herself out there in a bad way and maybe this will end up getting edited out but carly lloyd had a series of tweets including a tweet that said quote don't call me white privileged after asking about uh where to buy a lawnmower and a golf cart on the day of the biggest protests in minneapolis it's kind of shocking that someone who's so vocal and at the forefront of the uh pay equality and gender equality battle for the USWNT would be so like tone deaf. And of course, that did lead to her blocking me on Twitter. And I will edit this out. But uh, I was a little annoyed to see her being so just like cowardly, uh, in a sense. And of course, the same thing applies to like Drew Brees. But I do think that like, there's a difference when you're someone who has consistently fought for equality of other of other uh, in other target groups, and then being so tone deaf here. But nonetheless, Nick, do you want to wrap us up? And then no, uh, that's, I think you, oh, man, I would be perfectly fine with you leaving that in just because I think that segues into my final point. And that's that if there is going to be change in this, in soccer specifically, it needs to come from the united effort of both fans and players. And there are always going to be kind of rogue agents like Carly Lloyd who aren't coming from a genuine place and kind of an ill informed place. But I think in the last couple of weeks, it's been really, really, really so just as, as someone who is a minority fan of the game um, and to that, like my heart breaks every time I, I read a story on ESPN or any other like Bleacher Report, the athletic of sort of racism cropping back up into the game. Um, and it's just been really heartening to see that there is, at least from a player perspective and a club perspective, um, however genuine it is, um, whether or not, like Nathan was saying, whether or not it's via social pressure, because that's also a good thing, that clubs are being pressured into doing the right thing, or whether or not it's from vocal leaders like Raheem Sterling, uh, that this issue is not going to be forgotten about in soccer for a long time, and it's going to be tackled and debated and we are slowly, like Caleb was saying, slowly but surely starting to see things change. So um, keep using your voices, keep using your platforms, um, and hopefully uh, change isn't something that comes the next day when you get out of bed and uh, turn on your TV and watch soccer. But it is something that does happen when you get out of bed every single day of every single week of every single month uh it's a slow moving beast but it is a beast that moves with ferocity so uh use your voices we at corner kick will continue to support those who are 
advocating for, uh, whether or not it be on the field or in the media, um, for those who do what's right. And, uh, yeah, I think I speak for the three of us when we say that, uh, black lives do matter and, uh, corner kick does support those who are putting themselves on the line for what they believe in. Yeah. And with that being said, uh, this has been our first episode of corner kick on Spotify. Uh, you can find us here. This is our new home. It's really exciting to be uh, coming to you on a brand new pra- on a brand new platform. Uh, I've been Nick Vinden. I'm Caleb Rhodes. Nathan Strauss. Enjoy the return of soccer, and we will see you all very, very soon.